Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this episode of Protect and Serve contains names and stories of Indigenous people that have sadly died. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Former Detective Inspector Greg Lamy is the man any cop would want beside them. He's intelligent. He's thoughtful. He's an incredible communicator, a superb listener, and a born investigator who worked hard for his victims throughout his 20-year career in the New South Wales Police, where he achieved tremendous success, both inside and outside of policing. In this two-part episode, Greg and I talk about the challenges of policing the western suburbs of Sydney in the late 90s and early 2000s. The pressures police face trying to build a case to get it to court in rural outback Australia and that sometimes policing can take its toll on even the strongest of characters. Greg is a friend, he's a colleague and it was an honour for me to sit down with him recently and hear his policing story. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. Um, absolutely honoured to have a, a close friend and former colleague with us uh, this morning and this evening as we're talking over two extraordinary long distant time zone. He's in Australia. I'm here down in Devon, actually on a two day break. So coming live to you from Salkham in Devon, which is fascinating, beautiful part of the countryside. But 
for all intents and purposes, the most important person we want to hear from today is Greg Lamy. Greg, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good, Ollie. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. No, it's, yeah, no, no, no. It's an absolute honor to have you on. And to give everybody a little bit of context, we've known each other now for a number of years. Um, you've mm. left the New South Wales Police as a former detective inspector, moved into the private sector, and we've worked together in our private capacities outside of policing. Now, with every start of a podcast, my first question to everyone is, why policing? Oh, good question. Um, why not, I suppose? I never really wanted to particularly be a policeman. Um, I, like a lot of people, I think I want to be a detective. I didn't probably realise you actually had to be a policeman before you became a detective. But, <laughs> um, you know, that whole illusion of you know solving crime and, and stuff like that was good. I went to university and did a business degree. Go figure. I I just I didn't see myself continuing further with that. In you know certainly not an exciting career like I'd hoped. And I thought, well, why not? So I joined the cops, and look, it was the best almost two decades of my life. To be honest, um, I, I don't regret anything. Um, I had a great time, especially as a young policeman in you know working the city. I mean, things got a bit tiring as you get grow older and you get. Um, you know, get over a lot of stuff and you're sort of doing the same stuff over and over again. You go into management, um, things get a bit tiring, but, you know, um, being a policeman was, was a fantastic career, I think. Um, I, I certainly had a great time. Um, you know, why did I join? I, I, I don't know. I just think business wasn't for me. Um, it's, it's something I, I have a look back on, that's for sure. You joined the academy in New South Wales in the 1990s. Mm. Were you ready for that experience? And are they memories that you look on fondly from your time at the academy? Best six months of my life, I can hands down say. Um, I've met, you know, fantastic people. I, I left my hometown, which was in country Queensland, a little town called Rockhampton, and went almost probably 1,500 kilometres down to a place called Goulburn in the middle of New South Wales, which is a cold dreary place where they have the police academy and also Australia's most secure jail, which is coincidental. Um, <laughs> it was a bit of a shock to the system coming from the tropics to the cold, but um, look, I had the best six months of my life. There's no doubt about that. I met some great people. You know, you learn a, a bit at the academy, but you you do your, your learning when you get out on the street, of course, but I enjoyed every minute of it. How did you deal with the intensity of the learning? Because it's often a big area of discussions that we have on the podcast that the skill set required of a police officer is is so vast you know often sometimes described as training to be a lawyer you have to remember mm. and be able to regurgitate verbatim pieces of legislation whether it be an assault public nuisance whatever mm. the case may be how did you cope with that, that that academic side of the academy oh the academics i had zero problem with i mean i just finished a business degree a bachelor of business so um, the academics went problem for me probably what more of a problem was was the the physical stuff um but I, I got through it you know um i came out of the academy probably as fit as i'd been in my entire life which was good um but yeah the academics weren't terribly difficult i didn't think it was all new to me and exciting you know you're learning about you know the law and i still love the law today i love you know pulling apart cases and case law and legislation and all that sort of stuff that's what i teach people now um, that that was really good, and and you know, shooting guns and hitting people with batons and tasers and capsicum sprays, all fun. I never really got wound up about it, to be honest. But um, 
it, you know, it is part of the job and it's certainly exciting, that's for sure. It's one of the biggest differences. We spoke about this on last week's episode with uh, Raymond Quadrilig, where we talked about the pressures of graduating from the police in Australia and from the day mm. of graduation, um, carrying a series of accoutrements which allow you to deal with a multitude of different scenarios and, and levels of risk. And one of those is the ability to use lethal force if yeah. it, if you needed to do so. And that's a huge pressure for, for, for young people, you know, 18 years old. You can join the police at 18. That's a hell of a lot of pressure. Did you kind of contemplate or really consider the pressure that was, or, or the responsibility more is more appropriate um, line in terms of that pressure on you walking out with, with such skills, such abilities mm. to resolve situations at such a high level? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, during that six months, and look, six months is not a long time. Mm. And there's a hell of a lot of learning to do in that time. And then at the end, they give you this gun. And back then, it was a Smith & Wesson's, um, you know, six-shooter. It was a fantastic gun, by the way. But, um, and, you know, give you a gun and a baton. When I left, they, we didn't have tasers and spray and other stuff that they do today. So I don't know how they fit on themselves walking around, to be honest. But um, so a gun and a bat, and then off you go. But um, look, I, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a fan of guns. I mean, <laughs> when I certainly went into plain clothes, if I didn't forget to wear it, the other half time I just didn't because I'm not, I'm not a real fan. But that's you know, things are different. Again, things are different today, particularly since 9/11 and terrorism and all that sort of stuff. But um, look, the responsibility. Yes, you realise you have it. Um, I never, you know, thank God, had to shoot anyone. I came, I won't say close a couple of times, but probably finger on the trigger pointed at somebody. And and it's funny, you know, you, you look back in retrospect about those things and you think, gee, there for the grace of God, go I, you know, it could have been a split second either way where you could have pulled the trigger and taken someone's life. And you see it a lot on TV and then you hear all the rhetoric about, oh, I should have shot them in the leg. And, you know, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? A gunman has been shot dead by police in a suburban southeast street. A man has been shot by a junior police officer after one of her partners was stabbed at Kangaroo Point. Just after midnight, a 24-year-old man threatened police with a knife. Police fired four or five shots. The man was hit in his upper body. A gunman surrounded and there's nowhere to run. Look closely. That's him taking aim at police, but he never gets the chance to fire. People don't realise these things happen in a second. Two tops, you know. I remember once I was in a place called Five Top, um, which is in a city in Sydney, and um, a fellow was walking along. He had a machete, and he probably he was fairly un, unhinged. And I had my gun pointed at him with my finger on the trigger. Now, the difference between him putting down that machete and me resolving that, and him. Uh, you know, me pulling the trigger and, and killing the poor fella was all done in a second. Um, and you've got to make that split decision. So I don't think there's any cop in the world that doesn't realise the responsibility they have. And there's been a lot of talk, particularly in this country, about particular police shootings up in the Northern Territory and so forth, um, where it's very, very easy to sit back years later sometimes and judge what should have been done. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you know, law enforcement officers all over the world don't make mistakes. They do. But it's very easy to sit back years later and psychoanalyze one second of a person's actions and say they should have done this or that. 
I, I always knew when I left the academy, I would never ever shoot someone unless I thought I was going to die. And sometimes I, I do see on the TV, and there's been a couple of incidents, in, even in Queensland where I lived in the last month or so, where police have shot dead mm. people armed with various things, like steel poles and that sort of stuff. Now, it's easy to sort of say, oh, you know, really, a steel pole? Did you have to kill them or a knife? Knife's different, but um, sometimes I do question do you need to because you know they have so many um things at their disposal tasers and you know the spray and all these sort of things but they don't always work and again it's it's a time factor shooting someone normally happens in one to two seconds i think you, you might not have time to psychoanalyze whether you should have got your taser or whether the spray would have worked or whether the guy could have got to you with a knife or whether the steel pole could have killed you you just don't don't have that time it's it's such a it's such an important point because you know you often describe as the one second to act and that one second that you act or a couple of seconds that you act those two seconds or three seconds whatever the case may be as you say it's always in a short period of time those few moments are going to be reviewed over the next few years during coronial inquests during ethical standards investigations and and analysed by defence councils and everybody else that wants to have wants to ensure that it was a lawful police shooting. You know, I had, uh, you know, graduating from the South Australian Police uh, myself in 2005 with a 357 revolver, and then moving up to Queensland when we were armed with with Glocks. You know, I th- I think in my career I had three occasions, and the first one was in South Australia where we, and it was an Indigenous community which. I believe adds an extra dynamic to the situation because of possible ramifications after a police shooting within a community, because I think there is a heightened level of tension and concern around policing in indigenous communities and, and how effective and, 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 and how we go about doing it in a manner which supports the communities and supports the culture, et cetera. But mine one was a chap that was running at us with actually petrol inside his mouth and a lighter wanting to try and set us on fire. So he wanted to spray us with, the petrol and then set us on fire and mm. i had actually picked a rock on the ground and 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 which was literally i don't know half a foot from me maybe even less and i thought to myself, if he crosses that rock that's my threshold that it, if if he has an opportunity to to cover me in petrol and set me on fire he's going to seriously hurt me and yeah. it was the most terrifying moment of my life knowing that uh, this decision is going to have and he literally got within i don't know a foot of this rock dropped everything and did a run in the opposite direction. And I almost saw, mm. I, well, I did, it was a huge sigh of relief that, you know, gun away and then foot chase on and just try and tackle this chap in the community to prevent him hurting anybody else. So it is a huge pressure. Mm. I don't think you actually realize how significant a pressure it is until the incident is over and you have a chance to really reflect, or you see colleagues going through the fallout of a fatal police shooting and that they are, because no officer goes to work wanting to use lethal force at all it's the last use of force that anybody no, wants to no. go near of um so i'm always interested to how different people handled that pressure and for me it was it was it was strange to start with but i must admit i wouldn't police again unless i had one on my hip because i i found it as a as a tactical option as a presence people were, were aware that if we needed to escalate a situation to the point where we couldn't control it and people's lives were in serious danger we could mm. deal with it but um, mm. yeah, interesting, interesting commentary there. But I want to focus you when you graduated from the academy. Uh, you graduated to Inner West Sydney down in New South Wales, mm. which notoriously quite challenging 
suburbs to police in terms of organized crime, prostitution, violence at night. T- tell us throughout, tell us about those early parts of your career and the challenges you faced. Um, yeah, so I started at a place called Newtown, which is next to Redfern. Redfern, for those of your listeners who don't know, was the hub of Indigenous Sydney. And it was a really rough area back then. And I was sort of policed from there all the way out to a place called Bankstown. So Bankstown and Campsy and all that were renowned in the 2000s for but virtually, you know, the gun control was nearly it was non-existent, you know, and, and there was mainly, um, how was that? It's politically correct. Me, um, Middle Eastern gangs, um, and it was all over drugs and um, and Islander, Pacific Islander gangs and stuff. A lot of drugs, a lot of guns, and a lot of shootings. Um, so you really had to be on point. I, I recall many times sitting at you know the detective's office at Campsy, which is next to Bankstown, in a in a thinly walled, demountable building, which you know the police stations seem to be um, rife with here. Um, thinking, you know. Anyone could just drive by and, and, and fire a, a semi-automatic gun into here. And that, that actually happened at um, a place called Lakemba. It's the first time, I don't know why, but in my career I was sort of, you know, witness to the first of a lot of things that happened in New South Wales Police Force, um, most of them bad, but um, Lakemba Police Station was shot up by a semi-automatic weapon with a car full of Middle Eastern uh, wow. gang members. Um, which was, again, the first time that had happened in Australia. And it, and it was sort of like, this just doesn't happen in this country, you know, but it does and it did. Um, but that's how rife guns were. So it was an interesting time in inner Sydney during the 2000s. Um, I couldn't wait to get out. It wasn't any better out in the bush, as you could um, truly appreciate. But um, it was certainly an interesting time, a really good time to be a cop, really good time to pry your trade, I suppose. Um, lock up crooks. Um, there was a, they were always around. There were lots of different gangs and um, drugs and you know Pacific Islanders jumping counters of banks and and all sorts of stuff. Lots of exciting things. Well, I call it exciting. Obviously, it's not very good for the victims, but exciting things happening if you're a young cop in Sydney at that time. The Redfern. It's an interesting one you bring up because Redfern, as you say, is got mm. um, a high density population of Indigenous people. Um, there have been a number of incidents there in the last decade of serious antisocial you know behavior uh, some rioting which new south wales police have struggled to contain at times what started out as a few rocks being thrown at passing patrol cars quickly developed into a pitched battle they siphoned petrol from parked cars creating molotov cocktails it really has become quite there's been a number of flashpoints where um you know behavior and crime um has and people generally wouldn't travel through redfern they would probably give it a fairly decent wide berth because of the potential of recourse of walking through a suburb which was sadly uh infiltrated by people that just wanted to commit serious crime so it's um always it's been a great challenge when when during those periods, is that when you realised that policing would present you with some great personal challenges and confrontation? Was there a point where you realised at the start of your career, crikey, you know, policing's actually going to provide me some significant challenges to try and overcome here? Uh, no, I don't think I ever thought of it like that, Ollie. I, I, you know, at that time, that you know, that was before I had kids and a family and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, again, for a young policeman, that's, that's what you 
joined for, I think. You joined for that action, as I call it. Um, you know, I, I joined a lock cooks up. You know, my my job was, as far as I was concerned, to protect the community. And, um, you know, it was, it was was exciting times. I mean, you know, all those things like the Redfern riots, I wasn't at the Redfern riots, but they were, again, you know, I'm talking to people in the UK who are quite used to fairly large sort of that sort of activity, those riots. But I mean, in Australia, those things really prior to then didn't happen here, like the shooting of the Canberra and like um, a few other things that I'll talk about as well. They just didn't happen here. And, um, you know, those Redfern riots were probably on the scale of world riots fairly low, but again, quite a big thing to happen in Sydney. But it makes you think, well, you know, there's reasons behind everything. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about it soon about the um, the terrible relationship between police and the Indigenous community in this country, mm. which is really not much better these days, to be honest. I mean, cops are always trying to make it better. The government's always trying. But I'll be honest, in my 20 years, I don't think it's much better from when I started. Well, the, the 2004 riots in Redfern centred around the death of a young man called Thomas Hickey, mm. who was riding his push bike down a hill and according to New South Wales police at the time, hit a gutter, was thrown off his bike and was tragically impaled on some fencing mm. and, and yeah. died as a result of his injuries. And a lot of the coronial inquest in that focused on whether or not actually at the time New South Wales police were pursuing Hickey um, and, mm. and trying to detain him for obviously an offence of some, some sort. At one end of the street, 100 angry locals, some just 10 years old, mourning the death of a teenage friend. At the other, a handful of police, outnumbered and ill-equipped. The Aboriginal community blames police for the death of 17-year-old Thomas Hickey. The rioters say there's been an injustice. And, and that public disorder, which, as you say, I think public disorder of the scale that occurred in Redfern in 2004 is somewhat unheard of in Australia. Mm, yeah. 42 yes. police officers were injured during that, um, the, during those riots several of them knocked unconscious by flying debris, which is incredibly serious. So it just shows you the tensions that existed. And often these tensions are building up for some time. You know, we've had them here in the UK yeah. in, in, in early 2011 with the Croydon riots after the shooting of a chap called Mark Duggan. So the, watching from afar, as you would have been, what was, you know, the scenes of those Redfern riots? What was your thoughts and feelings at that time? It's funny because, um, you know, I'm a, I was a police officer, obviously, you know, you think the police are doing their best. Um, and, and I guess you're right. We didn't know how to really deal with things properly back then. I mean, we've got riot, public order and riot spots now, which and they're fully trained to deal with that mm -hmm. sort of thing. But up until then, they weren't really. And um, you look at some of the footage and of those poor buggers at Redfern and they're doing their best. But I'm sure as an, you know, as a seasoned experienced riot um, trainer, you'd look at that and go, this is terrible. But, you know, again, it's, it's, it's not the sort of thing that happened in this country. If it did happen, it would happen so infrequently that, you know, when it did happen, you just weren't ready. I think mm -hmm. things have changed um, since. And the whole um, TJ Hickey thing, I mean, you know, I don't know the full story, but I think he'd done a bag snatch or allegedly done a bag snatch and they were after him for that or he was wanted or, or something. And the cops just chased him for no reason. Um, but it, again, a tragic outcome for, for that kid and his family. You know, other cops to blame for that? 
I, I don't know. That's that's beyond my pay grade. Uh, let, you know, let's talk about this because you know one area that I often intrigues me is people's understanding as to a police officer's responsibility, both on duty and off duty. Mm. Now, one of your close colleagues from the academy, mm. Peter Forsyth, uh, in 1998 was involved um, in an in an attempted arrest off duty one evening when he was approached by a character trying to sell drugs, and he went to make an arrest as probably some cops would some cops would choose just to leave it alone and let him go but those that um you know consider their position incredibly seriously both on and off duty take action do you want to tell us through that particular story because it's it's obviously a bit of a painful one yeah i think it's painful for a lot of people around that time but pete was a great fellow him and i were were the only two queenslanders at, at the new south wales police academy so we we yeah we weren't best mates but we knew each other quite well um, and yeah, he, as you said, he tried to arrest, he was with a couple of other, um, young, um, police and he tried to arrest a fellow who tried to sell them drugs. I mean, they were in park uniform for God's sake mm-hmm. in a place called Glebe in Sydney again. And they did arrest them. And one of the, one of the guys pulled out a knife and stabbed two of them. So a fellow by the name of Jason Semple, who's, um, you know, he's around today, but he was quite injured quite badly. And, um, Pete as well. Now Pete only copped one. Um, knife wound to the body. Unfortunately, that pierced his heart and he died. I think Jason Semple was stabbed quite a few times and Pete went to his aid but, and he's um, luckily survived. But uh, it was a terrible time for us. And, and it, what it, I guess what it reiterated to us is how quickly things can turn. And I know we talked at the very start of this about, you know, guns and reaction time and, you know, deciding whether to shoot or anyone. Obviously, they didn't have their weapons on them. But it goes to show you how quickly, um, you know, you can die from a knife. And, you know, there's that old thing, I think it's eight metres or something mm. in one second. Someone can run eight metres and stab you. So, you know, again, you know, I hear a lot of this rhetoric, particularly around knives, about, oh, you know, why didn't you shoot him in the leg? And then there's that old joke, well, cops generally aren't that good of a shot. And certainly I wasn't. I know that to shoot someone in the leg if they were running at me. I'm flat out. Here, here. I was shocking. Yeah. I'll tell you that now. Shocking. Yeah, but it's not it's not about shooting them dead. It's about stopping the threat. Exactly. Some people might think this is a cop-out comment, but it's actually what we're trained to shoot the threat and to shoot the the shoot the threat to stop it. You aim for the largest body mass, and the largest body mass is the person's chest. Now that's likely to kill them, particularly if you shoot them with a Glock, of course. Um, maybe not with a Smith and Wesson six shooter, but um, with a Glock, certainly. So that's what it's all about. And um, so shoot to stop the threat. Um, yeah, that, that's what we do. It's not to shoot to kill them. And, and again, it's very, very difficult to line up someone's leg or their arm or why didn't you shoot the knife out of their hand. That's fantasy movie stuff. It really is. Put a gun in your hand and see how you go. If you can do that, well, you're a pretty good shot. Take the, down the, the pressure. The, the, the death of... Peter, as a result of that stabbing, must have, you know, there's, there is no bigger morale crusher than a loss of colleague or friend. Um, mm. h- how did the police respond to that as a family? And how did you respond to it personally when you heard the news? Oh, it was really upsetting at the time. Um, yeah. You know, having a mate so close, he was in the next patrol from me, worked in the next patrol. Um, 
it was a massive funeral. I remember that, you know. But um, and I think it, there's a, a lot of the knife laws changed after that, as they often do. It takes a tragedy like that to change people's attitudes and law about things. But um, yeah, it was it was a shock. What made it even worse was that fellow. Um, I won't even name him. He went to Charlie's out now. He he had a baby with his child with his prison psychologist, uh, which is quite astounding. Um, but he's out he's out of jail now, living with that prison psychologist and their um, child. Well, I can't say whether I don't know whether they're living together or not, but it's quite an amazing story that sort of breaks your heart a little bit. Do you think do you think people like that can be reformed, that they can become better people again? I don't know, Ollie. I think that fellow probably made a terrible terrible mistake. Um, yeah, that's you know that's an answer I wouldn't be able to give. Look, people make mistakes, you know that, and do they have to pay for the rest of their lives? I don't. I don't agree. We need to necessarily lock people up for good forever for everything. Mm. Um, you know, in this country, we've got a real, in this state in Queensland, we've at the moment we've got a real issue with juvenile justice. You've probably got the same in the UK. You know, they're talking about raising the um, um, age of responsibility and all this sort of stuff. But we've got 13 to 14-year-old kids stealing high-powered cars, doing armed robberies, running over people, all mm. sorts of stuff. And and you think, gee whiz, you know, I've got a couple of almost 17-year-old kids that, you know, are too scared to, you know, walk out the door or or um, go the, go anywhere at night. And you've got these 13-year-old kids stealing cars. And I, I don't know what the entry is. I certainly don't have them. Um, I think it goes back to that whole thing. It's not all about the cops. You know, the justice system's not all about the cops. Our job is to protect the community. There's a whole other range of departments that I think need to step up. And I think that's often the greatest challenge for policing because it is the quick Band-Aid fix to a lot of issues in society, you know, from mental health to domestic violence, which... I would argue the police do have to have some level of involvement in because obviously ultimately people need to be held accountable for their behavior. Social services, you know, uh, missing people, you know, they're just three pieces of the pie, which take up a phenomenal amount of um, police resources in, in being able to actually take them away from proper, what people would be considered to be investigational work, crime fighting. Um, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of pressure, but I wanted to move on if we could to, mm. The next part of your career, because obviously you took a liking to the more detailed investigative work in terms of becoming a detective. That's, you know, something that you're quite fond of even prior to joining policing. What was the catalyst for you leaving general duties and then pursuing this more investigative career as a detective within the New South Wales Police? Oh, I couldn't wait. You know, I hated being in that uniform walking around and everybody <laughs> gawking at you. I couldn't wait to get out of it, to be honest. Um I don't know. I, do, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to investigate crime, not just go from one thing to the other. That's the first yeah. thing. Um, and I got an enormous thrill out of out of doing that. Um, you know, I, you know, there's a, there's definitely, and I don't begrudge any person. You know, I've got lots of good friends that did their whole career in uniform, and they're mm -hmm. great people, and they loved it, and good on them. But my, my, I mean, my interest was always in the investigative side. Um, which is, a, as you know, a, a very a slow burn. Um, but again, it, it's, it's something you really get your teeth into. I couldn't wait to get out of the uniform, to be honest, even though I ended up back in uniform, but that's another story. Let's let's talk about your first probably more notable case, uh, which actually saw you working your longest ever shift 
Uh, you have to correct me if I'm wrong there, but the murder mm. of George Giannopoulos in a uh, in, at a Greek nightclub in Lakemba mm. in 1999. Talk us through that matter. Yeah, so George was a Greek fellow, and Lakemba is a, a Middle Eastern, but a heavily Greek populated area as well. So he was out to dinner with his friends and family, and um, we were called, myself and a, a colleague of mine were called first on scene to um, a murder. He was murdered in the kitchen by uh, another Greek fellow who at that time in Sydney was part of a wider, very, very well-known Greek family. The Dallamingas family were a well-known, I won't say crime family, but certainly well-known to the police. They had lots of links with um, casinos and stuff. Um, and it, it's alleged, I must say alleged, of course, and I say that because James Delamangus is still outstanding all this time later, like it's 20-odd 20, 20 years. He fled wow. the country after that murder. Apparently is somewhere in Greece, if any one of your listeners wants to pop over there, there's a couple of million bucks reward to find him. The cops or anyone else haven't been able to, so good luck with that. But um, he fled, but he murdered um, George Giannopoulos in the kitchen. It was a horrific murder, obviously, knives involved in the kitchen. Um, I do recall that that job. I'll never forget that because it was the longest shift I think we ever worked and a lot of blood, a lot of a big crime scene and a couple of hundred witnesses. How do you, what's your, you know, often described as a number of conflicting priorities at major investigations. And we've been very fortunate on the podcast to interview some fascinating detective inspectors and detective sergeants um, about their time working in homicide and processing complex crime scenes, often with a number of conflicting priorities. What was, when you got to that scene and you see the utter devastation, um, how do you process what's important for you at the start of that? Well, I wouldn't be telling any of the detectives anything they don't know here, but I mean, the, the most important thing is the crime scene and its preservation. So you lock that down to get the people that know what they're doing to pull everything forensically they can from that. The next step you've got to do is identify anybody who may or could be a witness to that. Now, in that case, we had um, a restaurant full of people. Now, not many people actually saw the murder, but they're still all witnesses. Some of them are cooperative, some of them aren't. So it's about working through uh, what order to um, you know, get the information from them how long it's going to take, how many people you're going to need to do that. Um, you know, you don't want them going away and then corroborating together or, or collaborating their stories and that sort of thing. And then you go to obviously set about finding the person who did it. Now, we knew in that particular case fairly quickly who'd, who'd done it, but there's a lot of murders where you don't. So then you have to sort of backtrack and do a bit of victimology to work out, well, who, who's done this and why and try and piece, piece that together. Um, to narrow down who could have done it. That can sometimes take many years. And of often course, one it's of the... not like the one hour TV show, which everyone sort of, you know, seems to think that what's, you know, it's that quick and it's just not. The, the, one of the greatest challenges when you're dealing with scenes like that, as you picked up in one of your points, is that if you're going to a location where the police are well known, whether all the, the individuals and the families are well known to police, often trying to get those people to cooperate at any level is incredibly mm. difficult. H how do you overcome those hurdles in trying to build a very quick rapport to get cooperation? Well, you mentioned the word, it's all about rapport. Mm. Even now, you know, I teach, you know, for, I've been out of the cops for 12 years and I teach other investigators, not police, but other investigators. And it's all the same. 
I mean, the fundamentals of investigation are the same, whether you're investigating a triple murder or a dog attack or a car accident or anything. The fundamentals are actually the same. And people sort of look at me a bit strange when I say that and go, what? Yeah, well, they are. It's about, have you got a crime scene? Have you got some forensic evidence? Have you got witnesses? Now, as a detective, it all comes back to your communication, your ability to have people trust you. And now they wait from the start, but if you can communicate properly, if you can build rapport properly um, and use your communication skills, simple things like open questions. People, you know, and again, I train this every day. What's an open question? I tell people and they ask me everything else but an open question. Mm-hmm. And I say, how do you build rapport? And they look at me silly and go, oh, I don't know. Well, it's quite easy. You start talking about something that's got nothing to do with what you're going to talk about. Mm. So it's about building trust and rapport and using your communication skills. And 90% of the time, if you can get someone to trust you, they'll open up to you. If they open up to you, that helps your case as an investigator. You're listening to part one of my chat with former Detective Inspector Greg Lamy of the New South Wales Police Force. In part two, Greg and I discuss the challenges of working in rural, outback Australia and the skills needed to be a successful country cop. Greg and I talk in depth about one of the most complex and challenging investigations Greg faced during his career in the outback, a case involving the death of a local Indigenous lady, Teresa Binge, from Bogabilla, New South Wales, a case which remains unsolved today. Greg also opens up about the toll that policing had on him after 20 years of wearing a mask, which he used to shield from others the emotional scars he suffered whilst dealing with victims of serious crime over his 20 years of service. We talk about his eventual transition into the private sector and his newfound love of writing. All this and more on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynne Stanley, produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.